Jay is going to share for us if he makes it up here. From the Word this morning, I want to pray for him and then we'll let him preach. Father, thank you for this day, for the way you watch over us and care for us. And as you uh, bring us here today, we just ask that you would give Jay the words to speak, the words that we need to hear, and that we can take to heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bless you. Okay. My topic today is something I've wanted to talk about for quite some time now, and providentially, this subject was brought up last week by George, and that is worldviews. And as George explained, it's basically the the presumptions you make, you know, your what you believe to be true as is. You know, it's your preconceived notions, basically, or, or basically how you see the world. It's the term worldview. So I'm going to talk about what forms a biblical worldview, and we're going to contrast that with uh, several different kinds of secular worldviews and look at how worldviews are being debated today. So we'll start with the, what makes a biblical worldview. So a good place to start is the very beginning. So let's go to Genesis 1. Now at the very beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know we were created. We know we're not an accident. That's very, very important. And so we go through chapter 1, talking about when God made what, when. And eventually we get down to man. If you look at verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this is probably just as important as knowing we really do have a creator. But man and woman are made in the image of God. That informs everything. That is why we treat each other with inherent worth and dignity. Is because of this. And, and so, if we keep reading and get to chapter 2... And it talks about uh, how family is, is made. God created a man, and he created a helper, a woman, and they have children. That is the family. And so we get to chapter 3, and we have the fall. That's when Satan introduces sin into the world, and humanity is seduced by that. And humanity has fallen. And also in chapter 3, we get the first, the first messianic prediction. It's a prediction of Jesus. In verse 15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. So... 
as as Christians, we see this as Jesus. So, I mean, the whole Bible is good for informing our worldview, but this is really the foundation. So that's the first messianic prediction in the whole Bible. But when we get into chapter 4, we see the results of sin. We see Cain and Abel. They're the first uh, descendants. I've even heard it said that they were the first two real human beings because Adam and Eve were made by God. They weren't born into the world. They were made directly by his hand. That's an interesting way to to look at things. And so we see that sin has devastating consequences immediately. And then you go into chapter, well, chapter 5 is about Noah's descendants. And then in chapter 6, you get into the flood. And the flood and the aftermath of that basically goes through chapter 9. And then eventually you get to chapter 10. That's the table of nations. That's where civilization starts. You know, you have all these descendants of Noah and their names. And that becomes regions, you know. And then... Finally, you get to chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. That's when God disperses people over the earth. So that's that. These 11 chapters form a very substantial part of the Christian worldview. That's not exhaustive by any means, but for our purposes here, that's a, I think that's a pretty good starting point. Now. We live in the West. Basically, what I mean by the West is it's basically European civilization. You know, it's the West would be Europe, the Americas, Australia, so on and so forth. If you are a Westerner, your worldview has been informed by Christianity. I'm not saying that everybody in the West has a Christian worldview, obviously, but it informs what they believe. And you can, many people that are very anti-God will have very strong opinions. And their justification for why is usually they're helping this group or that group. Because they think this group or that group is being harassed and they need someone to speak for them. Now, I think they're, the way they go about it is wrong in a lot of ways. But that goes back to their worldview. It's been Christian for centuries now because we come out of the, the European civilization, which centuries ago was actually known as Christendom. So that's something we'll revisit as I go on. So those are the, the basics of what a Christian worldview is. And so... We can uh, contrast that with secular worldviews. So I put up uh, three different kinds of secular worldviews. The first is atheism, which you're probably familiar with. Atheism is basically a belief that God does not exist. Now, there's some sophisticated atheists that will say, no, 
I don't believe that. I just have a lack of belief in God. That, no, if you're an atheist, you actively believe there is no God. Why they want to mince words like that, I just don't quite understand. I suppose if you're agnostic, that might be better. I mean, if you're agnostic, you say you don't know. Okay. Now, materialism, basically, that's the belief that everything that exists is made of material. And this runs into problems, because if you believe that, you don't believe in evil, you don't believe in good, you don't believe in love. You don't believe in anything that's not made of material. And this worldview collapses very quickly because we all inherently know that all those things exist. And so another secular worldview, and this this is really gaining more and more steam in recent years as scientism, basically the worship of science. Like they'll say things like the only kind of truth is scientific truth, which cannot be <laughs> proven scientifically. But anyways, you'll hear people today say, follow the science. You know, science. The science is on my side. You're anti-science if you don't believe in what I believe. It, it's, it's really a perversion of science. Now, if... Many of you are probably familiar with uh, Paul Harvey, and I believe it's a 1965 radio address called If I Were the Devil, and he lists everything he would do if he were the devil. Now, there is one line in there that would line up with scientism. He says that he would deify science, literally making science a god, and that's really what they've done here. And many people say that science and religion are against each other, and they're not. If you want to look at the history of science, modern science as we know it today really starts to form in probably the 16th century in Europe. And why is that? That's because they were Christian. They had a Christian worldview. They believed that the universe was understandable that there was a reason for what happened, that it wasn't all up to chance. I mean, you look at the great scientists, you look at Isaac Newton, Johannes Kepler, Copernicus, they're all believers. And it's amazing that that science, science as we know it, would happen there at that time. That's not to say that there weren't People in other places that were doing scientific things, there were. But really, like the scientific method comes from 16th century Europe, which comes out of the Christian worldview. So religion and science are not at odds with each other. In fact, they complement each other very well. If we look at worldviews and literature... These are two books that I've read that I think show the contrast very well. The Fountainhead is written by a lady named Ayn Rand. She 
published it, I believe, in 1943. She was actually a uh, an immigrant from the Soviet Union. I believe she came over in the 30s. And so she hated communism, which, if you read her uh, other book, and probably a more well-known book called Atlas Shrugged, that's basically anti-communism. But it's it's basically capitalism versus the government. But the Fountainhead's a little bit different. It, it's about primarily about two young guys that are in architecture school together, and they graduate. And one guy does everything that he needs to do that he thinks to become a, a success. And the other guy, the hero, uh, Howard Rourke, he does everything his own way and does not have a lot of friends. And this other, uh, well, they're friendly with each other, they're not enemies, but the other guy named Peter Keating, he does everything, you know, he just warms up to the right people and kind of lies and cheats and becomes a, a success. But if you're reading the book, you don't like him, you like Rourke. But the thing about Rourke is, is he never learns anything. That he is, well, it's by Ayn Rand, so he's a Randian hero. No, he never learns. He's perfect the way he is. And through the course of the book, he even commits two very serious crimes. One, just nothing happens. No one ever says anything. And the other is quite, well, I, maybe I can give a spoiler. It, uh, Keating actually has Rourke design a building for him because he's not capable of doing it. And anyway, they, they uh, Rourke says, okay, I'll do that, but you can't change my design at all. And so they build it and they change it slightly and Rourke gets so mad that he uh, puts some dynamite around it and blows it up. And they have a trial. And they don't convict. Even though it's quite obvious he's guilty of the crime. And it's and when you're reading the book, you're kind of rooting for him. <laughs> and so, now if you, if you study politics at all, you've probably heard of Ayn Rand. I mean, if you're a libertarian, Ayn Rand is, <laughs> well, almost your god. I mean, she's real well known. And she actually came up with her own philosophy called objectivism. And it's... It, Basically, it makes man the highest possible good. She doesn't like, uh, basically, she doesn't like, you know, big government, communism. She doesn't like, or collectivism. She doesn't like collectivism, but she likes the individual. The individual is the ultimate good. And she doesn't believe in God. You know, she's anti-God. And if, I mean, she's been known as being selfish. Like, if you like Ayn Rand... As somebody that wants the government to care for everybody, they'll say, oh, you like Ayn Rand, you're selfish. Which isn't necessarily fair. I mean, there's many people that like her that, you know, are good people that will give to charity. That kind of thing. But 
the worldview is secular and in the end it does not work well. So, anyways, we'll contrast that with uh, Les Miserables. It's a book written by Victor Hugo. He was a French author. I believe he wrote it in the early 1860s. And uh, Les Miserables actually takes place, I want to say, the first year is 1815 and the last year is 1832. So that's a post-French Revolution. And it is one of the most Christian books I've ever read. It's really amazing. It's really long and quite detailed, but it's about a convict who goes to jail for stealing bread and he gets more time for trying to wreck out, I believe, three times. I think he's in jail for 19 years and gets out of jail and has a hard time of it. Like No one will let him stay with him. No one will give him food. And he ends up uh, staying with this bishop. And this bishop, basically, he's an old guy that lives with this sister. Basically, the bishop tries to teach him to be good. And so, actually, uh, Jean Valjean actually tries to rob the old man. But the old man says, just let him go. It's fine. doesn't press charges. Eventually, he ends up robbing this little boy in the middle of nowhere. And at that point, he realizes that he's not good. And so from there on out, he he changes his life. And it's really long and really, really detailed. And there's a lot in there that really has nothing to do with the plot. But basically, he goes from being the lowest of the low to being a rich factory owner and being just rich beyond belief. And he actually uses his wealth to help people. And he does lots of... Well, like there's this one scene where he finds out that there's a man about to be put to death for a crime that he committed because he looks just like him. And so he actually rents a horse and drives like three or four nights to this guy's trial and gets himself, basically he says, I'm him. And so they arrest him. And eventually... I don't think he falls off a boat or something. You think that would kill him, but it doesn't. He comes back and <laughs> under a new name. And anyways, it goes on like that. And anyways, he well, the, really the plot of the book is he's rescuing this little girl. She's a little girl on the cover, and because he knew her mom, and her mom died, and he takes care of her and. Anyway, not to belabor the point, uh, I want to read a passage from the book. This is actually a passage from one of the, the parts of the book that has nothing to do with the plot. But it he's uh, talking about the Battle of Waterloo. This is the battle where Napoleon Bonaparte... Quite possibly the greatest military mind ever, where he was ultimately defeated for good. This was 1815. Anyway, he says, Was it possible that Napoleon should win this battle? We answer no. Why? Because of Wellington? Because of Blucher? No, because of God. 
for Bonaparte to be conqueror at Waterloo was not in the law of the 19th century. Another series of facts for preparing in which Napoleon had no place. The ill will of events had long been announced. It was time that this vast man should fall. Napoleon had been impeached before the infinite, and his fall was decreed. He vexed God. Waterloo is not a battle. It is a change at the front of the universe. That's... Now that's... Wow. Admitting... <laughs> the human events are controlled by God. Something like Waterloo. Did Napoleon lose Waterloo because of the uh, English general? Or the Prussian general? <laughs> you know, military uh, historians will debate that. But Hugo has it right. He says, no. It was up to God. He says it was time that this vast man should fall. Oh, that's when I read that, it just kind of blew me away. It, like, wow, that Hugo has it right. And towards the end of the book, he actually, anyways, this little girl grows up, meets a young man. Jean Valjean doesn't like him, but Jean Valjean actually does save him because they're having a an uprising, I believe it was in 1832, where her husband-to-be is injured and Jean Valjean saves him. But he really hurts himself in the process. And on his deathbed, it actually says, this is the line, this is the book, the line of the book. The convict has been transformed into Christ. It's just, wow. That was a very, very powerful line. So, these two, I think, really draw a sharp contrast between the rightness of a Christian worldview and really the shallowness of a secular worldview. So, let's talk about some current commentators. Okay. Now, Sam Harris, he's a very famous atheist. And... I've heard about him, you know, I try to listen to him, and in my mind, he's just overrated. I think that's the best word for him, but I don't know, you've, you've maybe heard of the Four Horsemen. It was Sam Harris, uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Richard Dawkins, and I think that fourth one was named Daniel Dennett. Anyways, they kind of got famous after... I believe is right after 9/11, because basically they they kind of blamed religion as a whole for what had happened. But you listen to him; he's a nice enough guy. You know, he seems to have the right ideas. He wants what's best for people. And so uh, Ben Shapiro, he's a famous, mostly well, he's a social commentator, and he's mostly known as a political commentator. But he does uh, some interviews, you know, sit-down, hour-long interviews, which were quite good. So he had an interview with Sam Harris. So I was like, okay, I'll listen to that. So they go back and forth, back and forth. And Ben's like, well, why do you think this? And he's like, ah, oh, because I studied Buddhism, you know. Or, ah, oh, because this and this and this, because I figured this out. And it's like, no, you think that because you grew up in a Christian country and you had a Christian worldview, but you're running from it. And Shapiro, he 
tries uh, uh, Shapiro. I should point out he's a very religious Jew, and so she, anyway, Shapiro's they kind of go back and forth and they're friendly. But I've heard Shapiro talk to other people about Sam Harris, and he says Sam just doesn't get it. We have a lot of the same opinions, not because we've done all the studying of ancient religion. It's because we grew up like five miles apart in Los Angeles. <laughs> it's like you just don't get it. He really, he doesn't. But uh, uh, Douglas Murray, he is a uh, British. He's also an atheist, but he calls himself a Christian atheist. Now he can study what's going on, and he can correctly see that Western society, which is, in my humble opinion, the best society man has ever produced, is based on Christianity. But he's not a believer himself. But he does not want Christianity to go away because he sees how good it is, what it does for other people. It's how good it is for society. So, but he says, I just don't believe myself that I understand that we need Christianity because all our morals and our way of life is based on it. Now, see, he's got the right idea. He's just not a believer himself. And I saw him one time and he was really struggling. It seemed like he was almost on the verge of tears that he's not a believer. So, hopefully, somebody can get a hold of him and. Hopefully the Spirit will convict him and he'll use his uh, vast intelligence and his influence <clears throat> for uh, uh, Jesus instead of for secularism. Now, Jordan Peterson, nobody knows. Nobody knows exactly what Jordan Peterson is. If you haven't heard of him, he was a, 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 a psychology professor in, uh, at the University of Toronto in Canada, and he got uh, he got famous basically because Canada was going to pass this law about uh, transgender pronouns that you would have to refer to somebody with the pronoun that they wanted you to refer them to. Anyway, Peterson says, "I'm not going to do that." Now people say, "Oh, somebody wanted you to call them something." But you wouldn't do it. And he says, no, I just said that I wouldn't do it if they wanted me to. So he got kind of famous for that. And anyway, he did some interviews all over the world and kind of blew up. And anyway, became a worldwide figure. Now, it was probably about five years ago, right, you know, kind of right after this controversy started, he actually did a series of uh, biblical lectures about the book of Genesis. And so he covered probably the, maybe the first half of Genesis. And it really, I mean, it takes some time to listen to, but it will really give you a different perspective on the Bible. He says he's coming at it from a psychological perspective. It'll blow your mind. But anyways, people will ask Peterson all the time, do you believe in God? You know, because he talks about the Bible, he'll talk about this verse or that verse, and he'll talk about Jesus being the Logos, which in John chapter 1 is actually, you know, where it says, in the beginning was the word, the Greek word is actually Logos. 
which is basically the divine logic. And so, you know, he'll he'll talk about the Bible quite a bit, and then they'll talk about Christ being the perfect man and what we're all aspiring to be. But people say, do you believe in God? And he'll say, oh, I don't like that question, eh? <laughs> it's a funny Canadian accent. And then he'll, he'll usually just say that it doesn't matter what you say, it's what you do. Like, it seems like he thinks if he were to say he believes in God, that he would have to be sinless, which... None of us can do, and he knows he couldn't do. So he, he likes to say, I try to live as if God exists. And I think he has a lot better handle on the Bible, and he has a lot better handle on human nature than many people that call themselves Christians today. I, it seems to me like his his problem is grace. I don't know if he just doesn't seem to understand that God's grace is real. I think he wants to try to earn it. But yeah, I've I've heard him talk quite a bit about Jesus in the Bible, and he even talks about God coming to Earth, and he says the narrative world, I think that's what he says, and the physical world, he says sometimes they can touch, which is referring to Jesus, you know, coming to coming to Earth as a man and taking our sins on himself, and he actually. Tells the guy in the interview, he, in tears, he says, and I probably believe that. But he says, it's too terrifying to think about. So, anyways, I, if you have any time, just look up Jordan Peterson. I mean, he's, he's, I think, having a big influence on the world. And really, a lot of young people. Now, his detractors will say, oh, Jordan Peterson, he's just for angry young men. And you know, there's probably a lot of angry young men that watch Jordan Peterson, but he's helping them out. And it really, many people are actually finding him and finding themselves going to church to try to find God because of Peterson. So I think he's really, God is using him in a very big way. And the last commentator I want to talk about is Andrew Clavin. Now, he is a writer. He's the last few years he's had a podcast too, and that's where I found him. Now he was a a secular Jew who came to Christ late in life. Now he says that he always knew that he wanted to be a, a writer. So when he was you know young man, teenage years, you know he was reading all the great books of Western civilization. Like I was just talking about Les Miserables. You know, that's one example. But most books that are, well, I guess you might call the Western canon, you know, all the big important books that really kind of shaped Western society. You know, he was reading those. And then he was he was reading them and he says, they all have to do with Jesus. Which is true, as I showed earlier in Les Miserables. And so he says... I need to learn about Jesus. So he's, I guess he got himself a copy of the New Testament. And this is a story he tells. That he was, I think he says 15 years old. And he was in his room reading the Gospel of Luke. And then his dad walked in on him. He always makes a joke. He's like, well, he could have walked, walked in on me doing anything. But, he, but, he, but there I was reading the Gospel of Luke. 
And he said, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm reading the Gospel of Luke. And he says, I'm not reading it for religious purposes. I'm just reading it to help me with my writing. <laughs> and then he says, my dad said to me, he said, if you ever convert, I'll disown you. And so that, <laughs> anyways, and he talks about how he became a Christian, you know, when he was an adult. Like, I think he said he was 19 when he read Crime and Punishment, which that's a book I talked about. Uh, when I was up here talking about the moral argument. And so he read that, and then he says, I knew from reading that book that moral relativism was wrong because that's what his college professors were teaching, that there is a true standard of right and wrong, which God must exist to have that. And so, anyways, Clavin, he's, I listened to his podcast weekly. He's, I mean, it's really different. You got that perspective of somebody who grew up as a Jew, basically secular, and comes to Christ, and somebody with that kind of creative mind. I mean, he gives a lot of insights. Like one time he talked about uh, why Christmas always makes us think of the past. Because it makes us nostalgic. And he says, well, why is that? And what he said is something very, very profound. You know, he, he just talks about, we always think about what happened in the past. And he says, that's been going on forever. You know, like, you know, sometimes we'll think about Victorian England because that was the setting of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. You know, we always talk about snow. And he says, even in that book, he's talking about Snow. Well, okay. Basically, he was he was actually talking about why the song "White Christmas" is so power, powerful. He says it's just like the ones I used to know. And it's and it's always snow. And he says even Dickens makes that point in his book. But he says in in England it doesn't snow very often. But it's he did have snow one Christmas when he was a boy, and that stuck. As a memory. And so basically, Clavin's point is that Christmas makes us nostalgic because we're nostalgic to go to heaven. And I don't know, you're going to have to think about that for a while, but that, that just kind of blew my mind. So, anyways, I recommend looking him up too. He'll make you think of things you never thought you needed to know before. So, anyways, that's a, I think that's a good introduction to worldviews. And so, <clears throat> basically, I hope that I sh- I've shown you that like, everyone you know has, a, I'm not going to say a Christian worldview, but their worldview is informed by Christianity. So, if you're talking to somebody that doesn't believe in God, you can... You can know that about them, and you can kind of use that to kind of help them along, because they're they're going to have a lot of Christian values, and they're not going to know why. So you can you can help if you're like if you have a friend that's a non-believer, you can use that to your advantage to to try to show them why they have these beliefs. Anyway, thank you very much.